Yeah, no problem. You know, I do so many interviews every, uh, every actually do, I do about five to 10 a, a week. So um, usually I'm pretty able to present material cogently that doesn't need editing afterwards. Thank you. I'm the one that needs editing usually. I don't <laughs> this world. Yeah. yeah. Too funny. All right, let's begin. In the world of personal growth and spirituality, we often talk about how powerful our minds are in influencing the physical world and how thoughts become things. But in reality, is this just woo-woo, new-agey, mumbo-jumbo, or are these claims scientifically accurate? What does the scientific evidence actually tell us about the scope of our human mind to transform thoughts into reality? To shed light on this fascinating topic, our guest today is a legend and a titan in the area of body-mind research, Dr. Dawson Church. He's an award-winning author whose best-selling book, The Genie in Your Genes, has been hailed by many as a great breakthrough in the understanding of the link between our emotions and genetics. He's also the founder of the National Institute of Integrative Healthcare, which studies evidence-based psychological and medical techniques. And he's the editor-in-chief of Energy Psychology, a prestigious peer-reviewed scientific journal. His new book, Mind to Matter, synthesizes the latest scientific discoveries in epigenetics, neuroscience, electromagnetism, psychology, cymatics, public health, and quantum physics, all together to demonstrate just how powerfully creative our thoughts and our minds are. It's been endorsed by other giants in the field, such as John Gray, Larry Dossie, Marcy Shimoff, um, David Feinstein, Jack Canfield, and features a forward by the amazing Dr. Joe Dispenza. So please, help me in welcoming one of the great pioneers of our generation, the author of Mind to Matter, Dr. Dawson Church. Wow, you know, thank you so much. What a, an amazing introduction. I feel as though I'm stepping onto a stage with 10,000 people now. Thank you. <laughs> it's a big honor. I've, um, I've read your book, and I also followed some of your other interviews on the internet. Yeah. I just want to say um, you're obviously brilliant, and you've made such huge contributions to our world, to, our, to humanity, with the kind of research that you do. But what impresses me most about you is just how humble and unassuming you are. Like obviously, you're brilliant, but I'm so thankful that there's somebody as brilliant as you that is just so grounded and so wonderful to be around. You have such a nice energy and presence to you. I'd Thank love you so to, much. I'd love well, to hear some about me. your... Go ahead. There's something you can cultivate as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm married. I have a wonderful wife, just an incredibly loving human being. Love made manifest. I have three kids, and they're just, they're, 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 they're just remarkable human beings. But also, you know, I make mistakes. I, I stumble, and I have to work with my own mind every day. I get up in the morning. i got to tell you, Edith, when I wake up in the morning, often I'm feeling confused, pessimistic, negative, depressed, and anxious. And then I meditate. And after just a few moments of meditation, boom. All of that changes, and my wife says she's so grateful I meditate because I'm—it's like a personality transplant after 15, 20 minutes of meditation. I'm just optimistic, happy, joyful, energetic. So these are all qualities we, we can cultivate despite all of the ups and downs in our lives. Wow, what a way to open this conversation! Because I—I I know that um, 
sometimes in this world with social media and stuff, we see everybody seems like they have perfect lives. Everybody's got these smiley photos, you know, on, on social media. And then we start to have a distorted understanding of reality. We forget that we're all humans. We all struggle yes. with ups and downs. We all need tools, strategies, support on this journey of learning and growth and that we stumble on our path and we experience challenges. And there are those days where we just wake up feeling super grumpy, you know, and that, right. that's all right. Yeah, there are, there are things called biorhythms. And in one of my earlier books, Soul Medicine, I write about biorhythms. And we just have days when just naturally we feel great. And other days we naturally just don't feel great. And um, I don't know about other people, but for me, my, my meditation practice, my spiritual practice, I have about a two-week cycle. So for two weeks, my meditations get deeper and deeper and deeper. I can't wait to meditate. I get clearer and clearer. And then... I've discovered that after that two-week crest passes, there's a trough afterwards, and it becomes I become distracted more easily, it becomes harder to get into meditation. I talked to a friend of mine yesterday, and he was saying, oh, I haven't been meditating now for weeks, but that's just life. You know, there are ups and downs. There are good things and bad things that happen. And um, like, uh, I'm, I'm actually working on a new book now, which talks about the wildfires in California, because a year and a half ago, my wife and I were in the middle of the night. She woke me up, and... Uh, we looked out, out the window, there was a glow on the horizon. I jumped out of bed, walked outside onto our deck, and there was a fire racing down the hill toward this big estate that we used to live on. And we literally ran from the house, grabbed our laptops, threw them half, half clothed, just enough to get out of there, ran to, to, to the car, and drove out through the flames, and uh, which just in, in, in engulfed the whole area. And over 5,000 homes were destroyed that night. And 22 people died. And so uh, we were, you know, many people died right near our, our home because the fire was moving at about the pace of about a football field every three seconds, driven by 80 mile an hour winds. So, um, you know, things like that happen. But we're, we're resilient. And so we were as confused and dazed by, as the next person. It's not like, it's not like you know, happy, happy, perfect lives and nothing bad ever happens. But what, what does occur is when those bad things do happen in your life, you are resilient. And so we, we spent a few days and we were, you know, we were really not in good shape psychologically. Once we, we, we couldn't see the house because the National Guard surrounded the whole area, wouldn't let any, anybody in. But um, we, we, we got photographs from a friend of ours who snuck in and took photographs of where the house used to be. And there was just a concrete slab pile of ash on top and a chimney sticking out there. And our office building looked the same way. The office building was just a concrete slab, about two inches of ash, because the fire burned so hot that it melted glass and it melted aluminum. So it was a very, very hot fire. And, but then which, when we got those photographs from her, we got another one a couple of days later where she'd been able to get in again and take a photograph. And in the middle of that pile of ash and rubble that used to be our beautiful office building, only one thing survived. And that was, we had a stone Buddha that was, had been stuck in a closet in, in the back and forgotten about probably for 10 years, probably it had been 10 years. Some it used to be outside then somebody put it away uh, in the back of this closet. We forgot all about it. And so when the entire office building burned down, there's nothing but ash. There sat the stone Buddha looking completely serene. And so I wrote a blog post with the Huffington Post saying, that's life, you know. Sometimes your house burns down. Sometimes you, you're, you go, you're, 
you lose, you go, go belly up and you're, you lose your house and, and in the economic crash, or maybe you have a terrible divorce, or maybe your, your, your kid or your child is really, is really acting out. So all of these things can happen to people, but it's that core of resilience, that core of love, that core of compassion. Compassion doesn't burn. The Buddha never burned. And love never burns. No amount of disaster could take away the love that we have with our family and our community. And so I love this idea of resilience. And you cultivate those practices, but you have to do it deliberately. It's like if there are days I feel like meditating on the upswing, and there are days I don't feel like meditating on the downswing, and I meditate, and I use EFT, and I do a bunch of other things like grounding and yoga as well, qigong, but you do your practices, and then when the storms of life hit, you have a resilient personality, and in Mind to Matter I show, you have a resilient brain. You literally grow the brain tissue to do with joy and with courage and to do with spontaneity and to do with emotional regulation, and then you have a way better life. So it is a practice. It's necessary to do those practices every day, whether you feel like it or not. Some days you do, some days you don't. Do it anyway. <laughs> How did you get on this path of exploring these fascinating topics? Tell us a little bit of your background. Well, my wife and I chuckle because when she was 15 years old, she was at Woodstock. She was at the Woodstock, con uh, Woodstock concert in when it was 1969 or 72 or something. When I was 15 years old, I was sitting in an ashram meditating and doing energy healing. And it's so, we just, we just laugh because although we've been together now for many years and we have an incredible, wonderful, rich relationship, we just laugh that you know, I, was, I was a teenager and I was ready in an ashram at 15. No rock and roll, no drugs, no sex, no loud music, none, none, none of that stuff, just basically really focused on, on, on spirituality. And, you know, I, I found it really hard, Edith. I found it really hard to meditate. I found it hard to maintain the practice. I never had a... Uh, had a steady meditation practice, even though I knew how to do it, till I was 45 years old. <clears throat> and so I had a, a, a good career in book publishing, and I, I did a lot of social, social projects to bring books on alternative medicine and spirituality to the mainstream. But uh, at 45, five, I was really just kind of lost. I, I, had a lot of, I just had the problems in my life, even though I tried to deal with them, had begun to overcome me. At, but then at 45, I made a commitment to, to daily meditation, and that changed everything. And I, I've always kept journals. Uh, since I was 15 years old, I've always kept a journal. So in the house that burned down, there was an entire bookshelf full of journals, like, like 50 years worth of personal journals, many, many journals, and date, dates in, date, dates in 19, the 1970s, the 1980s, 1990s. And the really depressing thing about being a journal, journaling person, if you journal, is that when I would pull out a journal from five years before, or even 10 years before, and read the problems I was journaling about then, they were the same problems I had today. And the depressing thing to me was that my problems weren't changing. I was reading spiritual books, I was, I was focused on being a better person, I was, I was learning all these great things, but my life at a fundamental level was not changing. And I, it was just boring. I, I, I could just take a, a journal from five years ago and the journal today, and the only thing different about them was the dates. The problems were the same. And I watched people, like I took a lot of courses in Gestalt therapy, and I watched people improve getting Gestalt therapy, but they didn't improve that much or that fast. And so I love Gestalt therapy, and I actually teach some Gestalt classes today. 
but I found that change was hard and change was incremental. But then on that magical day, I was working with a life coach and I made a commitment to daily meditation. And I had two young kids at the time, but for, you know, 45 years old, I was, I was a divorced single dad and hard time raising my two kids. And it was hard to find time to meditate, but I did. I began to wake up early in the morning and meditate every day. And when I compared my journal after six months with the journal from the, life, from the year before, my life had begun to change measurably. My health began to change. My spiritual experience began to change. My career began to open up. My, uh, my financial situation began to improve. My love relationships, which were pretty disastrous before then, began to improve as well. So all of those things began to shift and the pivot point was meditation. So that's why in my book, Mind to Matter, I give people two practices I think are the foundation of a happy life. Number one is that daily meditation. And it doesn't have to be an hour. It doesn't have to be half an hour even, but it does need to be 15, 20 minutes when you sit down and you really give yourself the gift of time alone. So I, I, I did that, and then after that, my life changed radically in the next few years and keeps on unfolding. Just, just, just what, what happened in the last week is, is, is an example of this. I talk about synchronicities in Mind to Matter. So the, as you can imagine, when 5,300 houses burned down in one night, suddenly the insurance companies who had insured them found that they had 5,300 families that he didn't find housing for right away. And the housing market here in Northern California was already incredibly tight. There was very few rentals available, very few houses to buy. Suddenly, 5,000 people had, had no homes. And they were having to house people far away, 100 miles away, two hours drive away. They were having to house people in trailer parks and in trailers, in uh, driveways. They were having to do all kinds of things. So uh, there we were, you know, no, what, what were we going to do? Um, the, the best the insurance company could find for us was a tiny little miserable old house about an hour away, an hour and a half away, and it just wasn't anything we wanted. And so my wife had this intuition. She said, you know, we've always wanted to live in this beautiful town in Northern California called Petaluma, and now that our house is burned down and we can pick where we want to live, we have one friend in, in Petaluma. Her name is Marilyn. Let's just give her a ring and ask her about, about you know, what the housing market is like that. So... And I said to my wife, darling, I can't call Marilyn. I'm too busy. But my wife is just very gentle and very sweet and said a couple of days later, you know, give Marilyn a call. So when, she, when my wife speaks in that tone of voice, I know she's hooked up. So I gave Marilyn a call and Marilyn said, wow, you know, I have a contract to teach at a university and it's two hours from my house. I'm going to make that two-hour commute several times a week. I hate it. If your insurance company will rent my house for you, that'll give me the money to rent the house I really want where I'm teaching now. With one phone call, synchronously, we had a gorgeous house in exactly the part of Petaluma we like the most. So your life just starts to flow that way. It's not perfect. It's not like you know, there's no fire or no financial problems ever or no relationship struggles, but your life starts to work that way. And that's why it's mind, it's not mind over matter. It's, it's the whole idea of being one with universal mind and meditation and then seeing what material creations you, you, can, you can create when you're aligned with that great synchronous flow that after all is driving all of nature, is driving the migration of birds, is driving the seasons, 
all of these things are in harmony in the universe, when we get into harmony with them in meditation, then that harmony begins to express and flow through us. What an awesome sequence of stories. You know, I, uh, during the Santa Rosa fires, I was living right at the border, um, five to ten minutes away from where the fires ended. I was living in Sebastopol at that time. Wow. And my little boy had been going to um, preschool in Petaluma, so this is all very near and dear. Uh, we now live in Novato, so one town south of you in Petaluma, so we're actually neighbors. I have actually um, an incredible experience, a story I, I haven't shared. Right after the fires, I was snuggling up with my little boy, um, and we saw a ghost, an old lady, appeared in our home. And instantly, I knew that she had just died in the fire. Wow. Well, and one of the women who, who died uh, was right near us. And what happened was that she and her son and his wife lived in two houses side by side. And uh, so she, they, they, they saw the fire approaching. They got in their, their car. She got in her car. I think she was 72 or thereabouts. And then, and then they, got, they were in their 40s. They got in their car. And then she said to them, oh, I'm just going to run back and grab the dog. And so they, they drove away, and she then made it out. She died with the dog in the house. So there were, were so many tragic stories like that. People went back. One guy went back to get his, his new pickup truck, and he died in the truck. And people died going, to, going trying to re retrieve possessions. And it was just a split-second thing. You had to run or or the fire would take you. So, yeah, it was tragic. People did, did, did die. And um, the repercussions of that, of course, have, have been, been with people in the form of PTSD. I happen to be, uh, I know I've written two books on PTSD. I write a lot about psychological trauma in all my books. And then how do we deal with these traumas? And so uh, it's pretty powerful to then apply these methods in, in your own life. I wound up actually flying the week after the fire. I was due to fly to a psychology conference in Vancouver, Canada, and give a keynote speech and a week-long professional training to therapists on psychological trauma. And I did that. <laughs> so uh, it's powerful to learn to apply these, met these methods to your own trauma from these kinds of experiences. And you find the trauma is curable. We, I had a really horrendous childhood. I had a lot of bad things happen in my childhood. But I began to work with them in meditation. I used EFP tapping. And they just began to dissolve. And now I have a good relationship with my remaining family members. And we've healed so, so much. So the good news is you don't have to live with those tragedies your whole life. You can heal and let those things go. Yeah. So um, about the ghost that showed up in our house, yeah. um, what happened was that she was very traumatized even as a spirit. Yes. That's the thing is that I, it, it made me realize all of my journey of learning how to work with mind-body connection, ultimately, maybe it is so that we can cross, cross through death without so much fear also. Right? Absolutely. That it, obviously, this is really practical. These tools and tactics for our self-care helps us to create a beautiful life while we're alive. But I think ultimately to pass through the gate of death without so much fear and trauma as we cross over to the other side, that was like a big aha moment for me. And so my boy and I actually 
accompanied her to the light. We helped her wow. to understand what happened. And we calmed her. We appeased her. We explained to her what felt like hundreds of times. There, have been a, there has been a tragic fire. Many people lost their homes. It's okay. You're okay. We'll help you. And so we guided her towards the light. And it was incredible. Right after that, the spirit of her husband followed along. He had been quietly trailing after these two goats, but we only could see the woman. And finally they crossed over and it was just this, brings tears to the eyes to think about this showering of blessings from above that came as she crossed over to the other side. And so I bring this up to, to kind of bring in a different dimension to the conversation maybe that is really important that we create beautiful lives when we are in the physical world, but I think ultimately maybe all of that is to help us practice passing over gracefully also, you know? We are universal consciousness, and uh, the old view of materialism was that consciousness was something due to our complicated brains, and that, that consciousness arose as brains became more complex, but there's no evidence for that in science. Science instead suggests that there are huge information fields which are measurable by various kinds of equipment and those information fields are being transduced by our brains into material reality. As we change our consciousness then our reality changes. That's what mind to matter is all about, how you shift your consciousness. Then the material world around you shifts as well. But you also begin to perceive yourself as being part of that consciousness because when you meditate you just drift up into this oneness with that consciousness. And all kinds of changes happen in your brain and your hormones and your neurotransmitters when you do this. And so you become one with everything. People also describe that feeling, in Mind Matter, I talk about meditations that do this, that feeling of oneness as being more real than material reality. This is, they, they describe this as the most real time of their whole day, the most real experience of their whole lives. That's reality, being an infinite consciousness, not this. So then you realize, oh, I was infinite consciousness before I came into a body. Now I'm in a body for a while. I'll be in the body for another hour or day or year or decade or 50 years or century, whatever it is. Then my consciousness will release the body and I'll merge again with non-local consciousness. And so you see your journey on earth as being a very short blip in eternal consciousness. And that's a very different way to live your life, especially if as you do it every day, in meditation, you anchor yourself back in that universal consciousness. So now you're living your whole life and infusing your life with the sense of being one with everything and that consciousness. You're not doing your actions, your, your, your work, your, your words. You compare everything you do to the values, the beauty, the love, the compassion, the kindness, the wisdom in that universal information field. And then you do your best to bring that to the world around you. It's powerful to live this way. It's incredibly uh, meaningful and nurturing and just transforms your life to have that perspective on your earthly existence. So when you have temporary bad things happen, like the fire, like the death, like the job, like the, like the marriage, whatever it might be, what, that, the things, that things just disturb people, you know they're just a blip within a blip. Your lifetime is a blip in consciousness and that bad thing that's happening is a blip in your lifetime and that full healing is possible and available. How is it that we lost track of this very natural understanding? Because this is when we look at nature, everything always works out 
you know, but somehow we lost that faith. We did. And we disconnect. Yeah. I I think children have it. Um, The research on meditation shows that different kinds of meditation have different effects and the kind of of effects on the brain and the body uh, in terms of hormones, neurotransmitters, enzymes, neural growth, and so on. And the kind of meditation that is, is unique is loving kindness meditation, is a feeling of, of oneness. And um, my wife was reading a children's book to her granddaughters this last weekend before they went to bed. And the, uh, the, the one rabbit in the, this children's book, they're three and six years old. So the one rabbit said to the other rabbit in this children's book, how do I tell you how much I love you? And uh, the little rabbit put out his arms all the way and he realized that wasn't far enough. So eventually he says, I love you all the way to the moon. And then he realizes that's, that's a good way to, to say it. So the six-year-old said, Grandma, I love you to the, all the way to the moon. But then the three-year-old said, I love everybody to the universe and back. So here at three years old, this, this child has a sense of living in a benevolent universe, being filled with love, and this love being extending all the way to, to the edge, edge of the universe. Now, she hasn't read any of, the, any of the studies which look at people in an MRI scanner and let us know as scientists that it's that compassion meditation that's the most effective in the brain. She was born knowing that, and so were you, and so was I, and so was everybody. But then things happen. We get neglected, we may get abused, we may get misunderstood, we may be betrayed. And then after a while, we build up what... Uh, Wilhelm Reich in the 1920s called body armor. We get armored, we armor ourselves. And just, I'm just gonna to move to the side over here because there's a posture that people get when they age. And now I'm, I'm sitting up straight right now, but then often as people age, their shoulders hunch, their head tilts forward, they lift their head up. And what I'm doing is I'm pulling my heart away from the world instead of living with an open heart in the world. And so that's what happens to many people. They wind up withdrawing their hearts, withdrawing their energy behind a wall of body armor and living that way. And it is so tragic that they then wind up only living a fraction of their potential. So children know it. And our job as adults is to reparent ourselves, is to find those things that limited our potential, those scary things that happened when we were little, those bad events, and then use these powerful new energy healing methods to release them. When we do that, we then reclaim the fullness of who we are. We do start to be able to love everyone from the universe and back. And that becomes our dominant reality. So you... It's worth doing that right today, not waiting 10 years, not saying I'll do it when I have my next vacation or when I get my next raise, once I move to my ideal home or find my ideal relationship. There's no reason to defer this even one day. It's so important to love yourself enough to do it today, starting today, and give yourself that that self-nurturing that will allow you to be the person you came here to be, to, to be that three-year-old and having all that love in your life. So I do a lot, teach, I teach a lot, a lot of live workshops. We, when we teach people in live workshops, we do a test with them of the degree to which they can receive love and the degree to which they can give love. And we find that most people are really good at giving love. They know how to give love. And they're really poor at receiving love. And in our live workshops, we have them score that. And there's usually a big differential. They score high on giving love and they score low on receiving love. So learning to both give love and also 
how to receive love and then be in that synchronous flow every day. Do the practices. Love yourself enough to do that meditation. Do that EFT tapping. Do that time in nature. Do that grounding. Do those hot baths. Get those massages. Have acupuncture. Whatever it is that, that is able to help you and nurture you and love yourself enough to make your consciousness a wonderful place filled with love that you want to be in and then let everything else go. It is so worthwhile doing these things every single day. And that's the way we gradually reparent ourselves. We weren't perfectly parented, but we made it as far as we are, 25 or 35 or 75 or 95. And now our job right now is to reparent ourselves, heal the wounds of our childhoods, and give ourselves that wonderful future that we all deserve. Do you foresee a future where we become better parents as a side effect of this and therefore our children won't need all these techniques in order Yes, I think all these techniques are temporary. I think we use them for a while and we won't need them after a while. And um, if you look at the whole trajectory of history, society is becoming progressively more intelligent, more creative, more emotionally stable. There are fewer wars. If you look at all the wars in history and go back, you know, a thousand years, there's a Russian historian who did this. I talk about his work in the last chapters of Mind to Matter. But he literally looked, looked at wars over the last, I think he went back to the 1700s. And progressively, uh, the, despite World War I and World War II in the 20th century, it was actually more peaceful than the 19th century, which was more peaceful than the 18th. And uh, back in, you know, think even back to the 19, uh, 1910s, 1890s, there were no child labor laws. Women didn't get the right to vote in the U.S. until 1932. We haven't even hit the centenary yet of women having the right to vote in the U.S. They got the right to vote in the first country was New Zealand in 1898. So in, by, by measures of democracy, child health, infant mortality, Everything the world is becoming much better including emotional abuse now, you know Incest child abuse was swept under the rug in the 1950s when I was born uh, now People go to jail for doing those things they get reported to social service agencies. So our society is on an absolutely stunning upward trajectory of well-being that we've only just really been launched onto and, and the children of the future won't be traumatized and won't need all these these things they'll naturally do this but they will still tune into nature because tuning into nature and and aligning yourself with the synchronous universe is just so pleasurable in uh in the i talk about a little bit about this in mind to matter there's a chemical there's a there's a neurotransmitter in your brain called anandamide and it's called ananda because that's the sanskrit word for bliss it's also called the bliss molecule and when you meditate when you enter these elevated emotional states you have many neurochemicals start to flow in your body oxytocin the bonding hormone rises when you meditate so you feel one and bonded not to another human being but to the universe um, the parietal lobe of your brain which handles proprioception locating your body in space shuts down so now you literally your brain loses track of where you end and the universe begins the prefrontal cortex of your brain shuts down the part that holds the sense of self shuts down now you are no longer this little local limited suffering mind you are one with everything with that great non-local mind and so those neurochemicals like the, the bliss molecule which i talk about in mind to matter your brain is flooded with oxytocin with norepinephrine, with serotonin and dopamine, with beta endorphins, 
with anandamide, with hormones like oxytocin, and you feel absolutely fantastic. That's why I wind up after every meditation feeling so wonderful, because I flooded my brain and my body with these delicious, this, this cocktail of hormones and neurotransmitters. And so our children will be meditators because they want to feel that good. Everyone wants to feel that good. It's how they'll get high. They won't need marijuana or magic mushrooms. THC is the, is the active ingredient in marijuana, and it docks. The reason it's effective is it docks with the same receptor sites in our neurotransmitters as, as anandamide does. And if you're docking your anandamide all the time, every day in meditation, you don't need THC, you're getting your body's endogenous THC, which is anandamide. You're getting serotonin, which is, which is psilocybin. Psilocybin magic mushrooms is serotonin. It's serotonin molecule that docks. We're just getting it from the outside, but we can make tons of serotonin by these elevated emotional states. Do an act of compassion. Love yourself, and you'll start to unlock floods of oxytocin, anandamide, and serotonin, and you feel wonderful. So our children will be addicts. They will be addicted not to marijuana and ayahuasca and psilocybin and alcohol and nicotine and all these things, because nicotine, again, dopamine causes a dopamine reward system, uh, they'll be getting high every day on the endogenous neurochemicals of bliss, which you get only in these elevated emotional states in the same, in the same ratios endogenously. So our children may not need the same practices we do, and they may not have to work at it quite as hard as, as we had to clear up our old traumas, but um, they will be addicts to all of these feel, wonderful feel-good neurochemicals as well. In my book, I tell the story of how, how my journey started in 2013 in the middle of a Qigong class when I was still in Chinese medicine school. In one moment, I'm following a really beautiful, relaxing, blissful meditation. The next moment, I bursted into trillions of pieces of love mm. and light the size of the cosmos. And it was just exactly as you said, exactly as others say, you realize this is the true home. This is the true reality. This is our true natural state. And who knows, it's beyond time and space, who knows how long it lasts. And then eventually you hear, oh, there, there's a voice of a teacher guiding a meditation. I should go back to the body. <laughs> this utterly ridiculous pretense of, of trying to squeeze infinite love and light back into a physical form, it just felt utterly ridiculous. And, you know, there's just this bursting avalanches of tears of complete gratitude for for having remembered who i really am and also deep grief that we're here living pretending to be humans but we don't really know what we're doing we're so lost we're so confused most of the world is done backwards and upside down and so it it created for me about two three years of deep dark night of the soul Mm. The only relief I could get was from meditation and many things happened. Like I lost all interest in, in uh, marijuana and alcohol and um, magic mushrooms. All those things had created interesting experiences in the past and now they so pale in comparison. I had no interest anymore. And it made me a seeker traveling around the world, reading thousands of books, attending many seminars, going deep into prolonged meditation retreat. I so wish that this book existed back then. That would have shortcutted my journey so, so much. And also your work with Dr. Joe Dispenza, like 
demystifying the mystical experience. Because back in 2003, the internet didn't have so much information. I had nobody to talk to yes. about what just happened. I just realized that my whole perception of reality got exploded. And many friends and family who have meditated um, gave supportive words of advice, but really there wasn't really anybody that I felt I could really talk to for a long time. Can you, for others in the audience who have had powerfully life-changing experiences like that, maybe some people listening have had NDEs and they come back and, and they don't feel like they know how to relate to the world anymore. What advice do you have for us to integrate those experiences and still keep our two feet on earth? Because there's a reason we still have these bodies, right? It's not our time to go yet. We have still work to do. What are we doing here? How can we integrate that vastness of beauty that we experience when we have, say, a mystical experience or an NDE into the practical day-to-day -day realities of life? Yeah, that's a really excellent question because your experience is, is having that, that illumination followed by the dark back of the soul as you struggle with that key question of integration. How do we integrate this? And that is a key, a key question. Like in our, my live workshops, when I'm teaching, often people will have breakthroughs and say they have physical pain. Maybe their pain is a 9 out of 10. And then I do some work with them and their pain goes down to 2 or 3 out of 10. Uh, and it's like, why are they going down to a zero? But then the next day, they're down to a zero, just because it took that long for their, their energy body and their psyche to integrate the information. So integration is really, really important. And the old model, Edith, if you go back um, 200 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, uh, 2,000 years, and look at the structure of societies, about 1% of people in every society were seekers. They went into the monastery, went into the cloister, went into the desert to be the desert fathers, the desert mothers, the holy women, whatever they might be. And um, I, I've got some very interesting research showing it's, it's always been about 1% of every society that's done that. And so um, the idea was you couldn't do this. You couldn't develop these enlightened states in the world. You couldn't be a baker, a uh, cobbler, a candlestick maker, uh, a blacksmith, uh, a lord, a lady. You couldn't do those things and also be spiritual. So if you're going to be spiritual, you went and you renounced the world and you went to the cloister and the monastery, and that's where you got spiritual. And so the spiritual people were over here and the world was over here. Now, that distinction is has broken down. Now, we're bringing those states, those elevated mental and emotional and spiritual states into the real world and into your job. And we are integrating them. When I speak to my team members, I think I can give a lot of thought to how I am with them, the energy I'm bringing to those, those human encounters. When I talk to my wife, I notice my tone of voice. If my tone of voice is not deeply respectful, I change it, or my children. So uh, in, in all of these ways, you, you start to integrate those. But it's even more exciting than that. I, I, I have a, a nonprofit called the Veteran Stress Project, and for, for more than 10 years now, we've been offering free sessions to veterans with PTSD. We've now been able to work with over 20,000 veterans over the last decade, and, and we've done a total of seven randomized controlled trials. And they show that veterans recover fully in just six sessions, and that they stay recovered when we test them 
uh, six months or a year later. So powerful evidence-based treatment, and it's free to veterans. And so um, what we're now doing is we're bringing these methods not just into the office and into the consulting room, we're bringing them to Rwanda, literally. We've had several volunteer teams go to Rwanda and work with the children of orphans whose parents were hacked to death with machetes in 1994 during the genocide. We had a team in Haiti of the 2010 earthquake working with the orphans there, highly traumatized people. We have, we've had people working with war veterans in other countries like in Iraq. We've had uh, people doing this with traumatized people and showing that even people with that kind of absolutely fundamental deep trauma, school developmental trauma, it happened really early in your life, are able to heal. And so we're now taking what used to be in the cloister and we're bringing it not just into everyday life, we're bringing it into prisons, we're bringing it into uh, populations like orphanages where people are deeply traumatized and it works. It gives them their lives back. And if you read my books, you'll find several examples of people who have been in that traumatized state that I was after the fire, where their lives were shattered. And yet they had these tools, they got these tools. And in, in, in the words of one veteran who recovered after doing this, he said, I got my life back. I just got my life back after this. It's just beautiful that we now have these tools. So integration is the key. It may take a while to integrate this into your everyday life, but eventually you keep on practicing, it becomes natural to you, and you reach a critical mass of brain tissue function. In chapter one of, I know we need to go here in a moment, but I want to just tell you one little case history. So in chapter one of Mind to Matter, there's a story of an astrophysicist called Graham Phillips, and he was a TV journalist by trade, and he heard about meditation, decided he wanted to try an eight-week mindfulness meditation course. So he went with his TV cameras and the whole crew to a university called Monash University, where they tested him extensively. They did MRIs, EEGs, they measured, they gave him a whole battery of psychological and physical tests before he began meditating. And after he then meditated, he began to find his behavior changed, his attitude changed, he was much less stressed over the course of the eight weeks. After eight weeks, he went back to Monash, they gave him all the same tests, and they found astounding changes to his physical and psychological function. But when they put him in the MRI, they found that several parts of his brain in just eight weeks, two months, had changed measurably, 2% or 4%, 3% neural growth. But one part of his brain changed dramatically. And that was a, a network of cells in the middle of the brain, the emotional brain, the hippocampus, had changed. It's called the dentate gyrus and it coordinates emotional regulation among different regions of the brain. So it makes you less stressed. And his dentate gyrus had grown 22.8% in just eight weeks. So think about that number. You meditate, you start to meditate, and you may have a lot of confusion. You, you aren't integrated at first. You aren't, aren't really sure how to do it, but keep it up. And his dentate gyrus grew 22.8%, that's almost by a quarter more neural tissue in only eight weeks. So after a while, you have a highly resilient brain. And so now it's not a struggle. You do integrate, you do handle life's challenges easily. You recover fast after the fire 
or the divorce or the firing, whatever it might be you have to deal with. You are a person who's just so in the habit of feeling good and feeling living in that state, state of love and bliss that you don't go live any, anywhere else. It's unthinkable to live anywhere else. That's, your, that's become your new normal. That reminds me of, they always say, prepare for disasters, yeah, be ready with a 72-hour emergency kit, but maybe this is an even more important emergency preparedness <laughs> that everybody has access to and it's totally free and it never expires, right? It's always fresh. <laughs> you know, what's cool is that research shows that even looking at people who meditated for a very long number of years, there's something called TLH or total lifetime hours of meditation. So people who, uh, people meditate in the first eight sessions, we can already, we can already measure benefits to meditation in only eight sessions. But in eight weeks, there are substantial changes in the brain. In uh, after a thousand hours, there are even more substantial changes. In ten thousand hours, there are changes. But between ten thousand hours and forty thousand hours of meditation, the brain keeps changing. So the brain never stops changing in response to meditation. It keeps on getting more and more resilient. Can you tell us a little bit about your research studies with Dr. Joe Dispenza? Also, there's some of this, this kind of like concrete data really gives us a lot of motivation to do that work because, you know, it's like, yeah, I could just sit there and eat potato chips and watch Netflix, but wow, and <laughs> the benefits that this is really good bang for the buck we're talking about. Absolutely. And I've done several, several studies with Joe. And one of them was really neat. We looked at people at uh, one of his workshops, and I measured their gene expression before and after. And so we have 24,000 genes. Um, many of them are active at any given, given moment. They change based on consciousness. So in Mind to Matter, in the book, I talk a lot about Joe and th that research. And we found at a meditation workshop uh, where people were doing meditation for a sustained four days, we found several key genes changing. We also did the same thing at an EFT workshop. We had people do EFT and then measure gene change before and after. And so that particular study, we found 72 genes were shifting after an EFT session. Um, and this means that hormones are changing, enzymes are changing, cell growth is changing, all kinds of in, things are changing in your body, in your cells, as you change your consciousness. But it was powerful to do that. So I've done studies with Joe showing that cortisol improves, that immunoglobulins uh, improve, that uh, gene expression changes, that uh, he's now done a study showing that telomere length, an aging marker changes, all kinds of good things happen. And it doesn't take eight weeks, it doesn't take 10 years or 10,000 hours. Those things start to happen right away the moment you start to, to do this work. In one one-week workshop I taught at Esalen, we measured people's levels of cortisol, their baseline of, of their main stress hormone, cortisol, on day one and day seven. We found that, this has just been published in a big medical journal, we found that between day one and day seven, their baseline cortisol dropped by 37%. Massive drop in stress biochemistry, and when their stress chemistry dropped, their immune chemistry rose. Their levels of immunoglobulins, which are the main, um, the main element in your saliva that protects you against environmental toxins and uh, pathogens, their immunoglobulins rose by 113% in just a week, more than doubling of immunity. Their happiness levels rose, their anxiety and depression levels dropped. They changed radically, and it didn't take a long time. It took a week since being in Esalen, being in a workshop, meditating, tapping, and then having all of these shifts happen in your body as, as well as in your consciousness.
wow. You think about how much money we spend to sort out these problems, right? The effects on our health of elevated, chronically elevated cortisol, the effects on our health of having suppressed immunity, how expensive that is to us as individuals, as families, and as a society. And that maybe the solution to it is way simpler and more accessible, but it just means that we have to, it just requires our commitment. That's the it thing. Does. It doesn't just happen. You have, to, you have to do the work. And that's why I say meditate, tap, get these tools, apply them in your own life, and you'll feel better right away. When, when your dopamine and serotonin starts balancing out in your brain, you start to feel great. When you do this work, the, we, one lady emailed in, her name is Tony Tomlinson, and she gave us permission to use her, her quote. She said, when I first sat down, because my meditation is very structured and it guides you through seven steps, she said, when I first sat down to do your meditation, Dawson, I, I'm, a, just a, I'm overwhelmed with parenting and I'm in, in negative, negativity mode 99% of the time. I sat down to do your meditation for the first time and my mental self-talk was, Tony, you've tried to meditate before, nothing worked, this won't work either. She said, when I began to follow those seven simple steps, when I got to the step three about being in your heart and feeling in your heart, she said, suddenly I was in bliss brain, tears of ecstasy began to roll down my cheeks and I was at the place I wanted to be for so long. And then she said the thing that really touched me. She said, Dawson, I'm going to meditate now every day. So you know, when you feel that good, you don't need an accountability partner. You don't need to make a note in your, in your Google calendar. You don't need to write it in your, in your journal. You don't need to put a sticky on, uh, on the mirror of your bathroom saying meditate today. You feel so good that nothing can stop you. From, from that state. So that's been the wonderful thing that's been happening as people are practicing these tools. Yeah, it makes me real, remember that we're out there chasing after all these things, but actually this is what we're all chasing after. What we really want is already within us. It's within it's us. Cultivated any moment. Well, I'd love to talk to you for hours and hours. I know you have to go soon. So please tell us how to stay in touch and how to follow your work, maybe attend your workshops. How can we stay in touch? Yeah, and uh, there are a number of things you can do. Uh, if you go to the website for Mind to Matter, it's just mindtomatter.com. What you'll find there is a couple of free chapters from the book, as well as free meditations, and also the EFT mini manual, which will tell you how to do the EFT acupressure tapping that I also use. So mindtomatter.com is the best place to go, both for the book and also for other resources. And then there's a tab at the top that says live events. So you just go to mindmeta.com and then you click on live events and it gives you a schedule of where I and our certified trainers are, are offering workshops. Also, if you click through that link on mindmeta.com, you'll get through to our practitioner list. We train people very carefully and very thoroughly who are able to offer this work to others. And so many, much of it you can do yourself, but in areas where you're really stuck, it's worth getting a practitioner and working with them. And we're also... We also have a new service opening up in the next couple of weeks, which I'm really excited about, which allows people to do virtual face-to-face -face online sessions. It's a platform open 24-7. You can log on there and just do a session with a practitioner, buy a 10-minute session, and be working with a practitioner in a second. It's, it, it is, it's an amazing platform. So that's also accessible through Mind to Matter. It says mind2matter.com. All of that stuff is there, as well as the Veteran Stress Project. So if you are a veteran or know a veteran, you want to get help to, you can find that link 
through that that site. How is that nonprofit work funded? Is it can we support you somehow? Yeah, there's a little donate button there on the Veteran Stress Project. Hit a donation. We get donations from some people. There's one Vietnam veteran who gives us ten dollars every month, and he's on Social Security. And I I can tell you, I've had other checks from from donors that are for tens of thousands of dollars, and and they mean a lot to me. But getting ten dollars from that veteran. Uh, so any, anything you can do to support us, we really appreciate. And we have a lot of volunteers as well who amplify the use of those funds. So that, 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 that's the Veterans Stress Project. You want to send a veteran there for free treatment. Wow. I'm, I feel so, I think I speak for everybody listening. We all feel so blessed and so grateful for your existence on the planet, the beautiful work that you're here to do. Thank so, you. It's, it's, a, it's a joy. Every day is a joy. To wrap up this amazing conversation, you've had an incredible life. You've witnessed some incredible, mind-blowing transformations through your work. If you were to distill all of these decades and tens of thousands of hours of professional experiences and personal experience too, if you were to distill it all down to one single piece of advice, the show is about us tapping into our highest level of human possibilities. What is the one single most important thing we should know on the journey in accessing our highest possibilities? Well, once I was part of a project where best-selling authors were given four words to summarize their advice. And uh, actually, they, they wrote these words on our, on our arms, and we then took, they took black and white photographs of us. It was so much fun. But... Uh, words how do i stop my learning four words and so now it's impossible and then i had it and the four words were live exuberantly and love extravagantly live exuberantly and love extravagantly if you're living exuberantly an exuberant life living your full potential maybe your life isn't perfect maybe you aren't perfect i'm not perfect none of us are perfect we all have challenges but live with exuberance live with the spirit of a child of play every day and love extravagantly if you notice any limitations to love you have in your life notice any limitations you have in your, your to love in your own think thought process your own thinking and let those go. Tap them away, meditate them away, and open yourself to the fullness of life. There, why not have the experience you had and the experience I had and just open yourself to this universe? It is so full of love for you. Often after meditation, Edith, I don't know where to put it all. I get off my meditation couch and I'm just in tears because I, I've been given so much bliss and so much love and so much grace. I don't even know how to absorb it. My body is not big enough and my mind is not big enough to hold it all. Why not live every day that way? And you can. So my advice is go for it. <laughs> I have tears of gratitude welling up in my eyes. Just, just not just intellectually hearing all that you're saying, but just feeling with my heart, feeling with my soul, the deep resonance, the deep truth of what you're bringing to the planet. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Dawson Church. So much love, so much gratitude for all that you are and all that you do on the planet. Thank you for joining us. It was a joy. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Wow. <laughs> I, that was just, just absolutely perfect. Thank you so much. I got, I've got to run. I'm so sorry. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you for that beautiful conversation. I'm so grateful for you, Dr. Church. Send me the links and I'll share.
I'll share okay, it. Okay, it will come out probably in three or four weeks. Okay, yeah. perfect. Great, thank you.